Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. What's good, Southeastern? Everybody all right? All right, now, man, just told you I'm at home. That means you got to talk back to me. All right? It's good to be with you all this morning and over these couple of uh, days thinking about preaching. And I want to say a heartfelt thank you to Dr. Aiken and Dr. Shaddix uh, for the privilege of being able to share in this time and to be thinking together with you about something as tremendous and uh, profound as preaching. Now, you may not think that preaching is tremendous and profound. You may may think I just said that because I'm a preacher. But think about it. In preaching, the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving, magnificent, majestic, merciful, righteous, sovereign, and holy God speaks to his people. And we, not being omnipotent, not being all wise, not being omnipresent, we, not being perfectly merciful or just or righteous, we, deserving apart from Christ, infinite judgment, we get to hear God speak to us by his word. And it's not merely the transaction between a distant God and a broken people. It's the communion, the relationship between a loving God and his redeemed people. To preach and to hear preaching is one of the most tremendous blessings we have this side of glory. And in these couple of talks, what I want to talk with us about is preaching something specifically. I don't wish to talk about the mechanics of preaching. I don't think I have to make an argument for a particular form of preaching. I'm, I'm very confident in the preaching faculty of this institution, what they both model and teach with regard to those things. I want to give attention to actually an aspect of the content of preaching. In other words, something that I want to argue, particularly in our day, should be preached with much more force and frequency than perhaps it has been. And just hanging over these couple of talks is this sort of banner title, Preaching Justice. I want to give us some thoughts about the necessity of preaching justice as we preach God's word. Before we do that, let me offer a word of prayer. We'll go together to God and his word. Father, we give you praise and thanks for this opportunity. We pray that you would make us alert to the privilege of this opportunity. That we might not take it for granted and we might not be distracted. 
but rather our ears would be tuned to your voice, our hearts would be lifted to your throne, our full attention would be given to your word so that we would be shaped by your word, informed by it, indeed transformed by it, that we might have our minds renewed and that we might apprehend, we might glimpse, we might see and have something more of you. Let your living word live in us. Let it leap from the page and right into our hearts. And let it overflow in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me have your Bibles with you. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. And as you turn there, let me just say a couple of words of reminder about the world that we're living in today. Beloved, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that we live in perilous times. Now, the truth is, we've always lived in perilous times. There's no generation that's lived without war somewhere on the earth. Hunger and disease is always prowling around humanity. The treachery of wicked men in power has continued since Lamech boasted of killing anyone who bothered him. A fallen world is a perilous place, beloved. We are, as our Lord put it, like sheep sent to slaughter. The question is, do we know how to live in such a world? What must God's people think and do in order to not only survive, but also thrive in this world? Is there a good life? in the midst of a bad world. And so what does that life require of us? I want to argue in this first talk that the good life, which God calls us into through faith in Christ, actually has a lot to do and say about justice and the pursuit of justice and a just character. And one of the places that you could go in the Bible to sort of see the good life unpacked for us over and over and over again is in the wisdom literature. And here in the book of Proverbs, that's precisely what we're going to see in so many ways, the the good life uh, illustrated for us and then distinguished from the, the bad life, if you will. And we're going to hear in so many ways a call to embrace that life, which is good, that leads to flourishing to live in accord with the requirements of that life. I just want to ask and answer four questions here. Number one, what is the good life? What is the good life? Number two, what does, according to Proverbs, the good life have to do with justice? What does the good life have to do with justice? Number three, what does the good life demand that we do? in pursuit of justice. What does the good life demand that we do in pursuit of justice? And number four, why don't we hear the Bible telling us these things more frequently? Why don't we hear the Bible telling us these things more frequently? And that's where we'll talk a lot about preaching itself. So let's take that first question. What is the good life? And we're just going to survey the the book of Proverbs together. 
and this book, as I said, is really in some ways designed to help us recognize, choose, and live out this good life. We finally hear a vision from God for how we are to live for God in this broken world. And we might define a good life this way, very simply, a life that A, pleases God, B, produces peace within, and C, promotes flourishing in this fallen world. The good life is a life that A, pleases God, P, produce, B, produces peace within, and three, promotes human flourishing. And to see that, let's sort of skim Proverbs a little bit and see how the, pro- the writer of Proverbs tells us that this life God calls us to is actually pleasing in his sight. Proverbs 8, 35 and 36. This is wisdom speaking. And she says, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Whoever finds me, wisdom, finds life and notice, obtains favor from the Lord. It's not surprising that wisdom is personified as a woman. All you have to do is meet a man and you'll know why it's personified as a woman. Striking that the Proverbs, when it talks about the favor of the Lord, speaks here about wisdom. And in Proverbs, later in Proverbs, says he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. And so ladies, next time he acts like he knows more than you, just quietly, contentedly smile, knowing that God has you in mind when he thinks of wisdom. <laughs> it pleases God. Proverbs 9, verses 10 and 12. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone bear it. You see this fear of the Lord which leads to wisdom and insight. Notice how it leads also to God's pleasure and flourishing. Your days will be multiplied and your years will be added to your life. Well, Proverbs 15, 9 puts it very simply. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. And those words are in the same sort of semantic family, righteousness and wisdom or justice. They are in the same sort of range of meaning having to do with this upright, ethical life, this life of uh, equity and, and integrity, of doing what's right according to God's word and in his sight. And it leads to peace. This peace that comes from the security that's created by uprightness and justice. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Or consider how the writer of Proverbs contrasts the results of a righteous life versus a wicked way of life in Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs 11 verses 3 to 8 is the first contrast the the writer makes there. He says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. 
The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. Verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. There are only two ways to live. In accord with righteousness or in accord with wickedness. In a way that leads to life and security and a way that leads to death and trouble. The writer continues in chapter 11, skip down to verse 18. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Verse 23 The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. And the writer just sums this contrast up very poignantly in single verses throughout the Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 28. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 21, 21. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life righteousness and honor. Proverbs 21, 15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And so all we want to see in this first point is that those who trust in the Lord, those who serve the Lord, those who are called by the Lord's name are actually called into a way of life. And in that way of life, which is instructed first by the fear of the Lord and issues forth in wisdom, part of what we see is this commitment to justice and righteousness and equity. And it's that life that produces for us a sense of security and wholeness, of of thriving, of pleasantness and goodness in the land that leads to shalom. Well, what does this good life have to do with justice? Well, we've seen it a little bit there just in the trying to define the good life. But let's, let's sort of pack, unpack that a little bit more. Foundational to what wisdom, to that wisdom which leads to the good life, is this practical applied justice and righteousness. In fact, one reason to seek wisdom is to learn to live justly. So right in the opening of Proverbs, Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 3, here's what the writer says. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. Now notice verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing. And how is that defined? In righteousness, justice, and equity. The purpose of the wisdom literature in part is to help us to know how to live this way. A just and righteous life is the consequence of of God-fearing wisdom. Justice flows from wisdom like water flows from a faucet. Turn turn on wisdom and out gushes righteousness. See the connection in Proverbs 2, verses 6 to 15. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. 
guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Notice verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And so there's this function of wisdom to both guard us in the good path and protect us from the wrong path. As we said before, when Proverbs 8 personifies wisdom as a lady, wisdom herself draws a connection between herself and this just life. Proverbs 8.20, she says, I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice. So beloved, we are not to think we are biblically wise if in fact we do not walk in the paths of justice. The connection is as ironclad as Proverbs 28 verse 5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Now that verse provides a challenge to the preacher and to the Christian. Have we preached the word and sought the Lord in such a way that we understand justice completely? Or is it more likely the case that we have sought CNN and Fox and MSNBC and whatever other news outlet and have almost completely misunderstood justice? If our people hear about justice from the world with greater frequency and intensity than they hear it from the word, the very best as preachers that we can hope for, the very best that can result is a partial and distorted worldly life in this area. We cannot let that happen and expect that salt and light would, would, would savor and pierce this dark world. So our third question, what does the good life demand we do regarding justice? Well, to the Western mind, wisdom is something we store in our minds, in the intellect. It's a heady thing. But in the thought world of the Bible, wisdom is not merely something you carry in your head. It is also something you carry out, something you do. It's a handy thing rather than just a heady thing. You show wisdom in part by doing justice. Proverbs 21 verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So how then must we do righteousness and justice? Well, I would suggest to you as we survey Proverbs, there are seven things we should commit ourselves to and put into practice if we would be the kind of people who enjoy the good life as it's unfolded for us here in the book of Proverbs. Seven things that we're to do. Number one, we must fear God's wrath on behalf of the mistreated and the neglected. When it comes to justice and righteousness, God has chosen a side in our disputes. 
God stands with the mistreated and the neglected. He is not an impartial observer. He is not an uninvolved bystander. He is not indifferent to the suffering of the oppressed. And we see this over and over and again in Proverbs. Let's start with Proverbs 22, verses 22 and 23. There we read, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. Why? Verse 23. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. <laughs> the Lord is ride or die with the afflicted. He is sided up with the poor. If they need an attorney to argue their cause, guess who enters the courtroom? God does. In all his infinite wisdom and his exact knowledge of every detail of every wrong that has been perpetrated against the afflicted. And, and guess then who takes the judge's bench? God does. He prosecutes. Notice he robs of life those who rob them. There is here a poetic statement of the death sentence for those who would rob the poor because they are poor. Because they are disadvantaged and powerless. Or Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11. Do not move an ancient, an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. Why? Verse 11. For their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Against you. That's the language of choosing sides. If we find ourselves involved in anything that defrauds the fatherless or takes away from our neighbor, we can be sure our holy God will, will stand against such a person. That's basic knowledge in the good life. God opposes the wicked, opposes the oppressor, and stands on the side of those who are often oppressed. And we are meant to reverence that God and we are meant to fear that aspect of God's character. We're meant to cultivate in ourselves a deep and profound um, reverence and awe and, and, and shaking before a God who takes the side of the oppressed. In other words, we are not meant to assume that simply because we profess faith in God, we may be indifferent to the oppressed and God be okay with us. He chastises all those he loves that we might participate in his righteousness. And this is one area I'm convinced the Lord is chastising his church in. Isaiah 5, 16 says that the, the Lord of hosts exalted himself in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. It's the your mind around that. We, 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 we stand in awe of God because he's holy. And we cry out with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah gives us that great vision of God in his holiness filling the temple with smoke and his robe overflowing in the temple. And, and we are sometimes tempted to think that holiness is something we only imagine about God as we picture his person. But there the text tells us that God shows his holiness Injustice and righteousness. Where we see justice prevail in the world, 
there we see a demonstration of God's holy character. The two are inseparable. And because God in his holiness shows his justice by siding with the mistreated and the oppressed, we must fear him and fear his wrath. For anyone who mistreats the poor and the needy, we want to cultivate that in our souls, that reverence for God. But secondly, we must then practically oppose oppression. To do justice, we must also take our stand with God against injustice, against wrongdoing, against unrighteousness and evil. So Proverbs 14, verse 31. We must recognize that whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs twenty two sixteen, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 24, 24 and 25. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right. Notice now, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. Proverbs 24, 25. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Finally, Proverbs 25 and 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. There can be no doubt in our minds and in the minds of our people if we're pastors that we take our stand on the side of the righteous, defending the cause of the marginalized. And there can be no doubt in our minds, as Proverbs 25, 26 puts it, that any sort of compromise with the unrighteous, any mingling of mud with the clear fountain and spring of righteousness, well, it pollutes us. It corrupts us. And we had better resist that. We cannot allow ourselves to think that the good life includes bystanders and compromises where justice and righteousness are concerned. We must oppose oppression in all its forms. Which brings us to a third thing. Not only is God taking his stand and we want to revere him for that, and not only do we take our stand, but number three then, we must translate that into practical responses to help the poor and needy. Justice cannot be reduced to lip service. We must actually get in the game to prevent the re- and relieve the suffering of the oppressed. So Proverbs thirteen twenty three, The fallow ground of the poor will yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. And God has provided a way even for the poor to have their needs met. But often that is taken away by unjust practices. High interest rates on from payday lending establishments. The kinds of things that go on in uh, predatory lending practices for homes and things of that sort. They're just taking away from the poor with unjust balances and weights. It's just an example. Or Proverbs 21, 13, in terms of calling us to help the poor and the needy. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. That should be startling to us. We close our ears to the poor and the needy. 
We stop up our hearts. We block the flow of compassion and assistance. This text tells us we may normally expect that when it's our turn to need help, to be rescued, there'll be no one to listen to us either. Proverbs 29, verse 7. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. It's texts like this that call us to sort of make a study of the places and the issues in our culture, in our world, that we might characterize as injustice. It, it, takes, it calls us to make a study of those things, again, not as detached intellectuals, but as people who wish to know the rights of the poor so that we can defend them, so that we can help them, so that we can enter in and intervene. We see this played out very practically in the example of the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. You remember Proverbs 31, verse 20? Remember what's said for her, about her? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This is meant to be a practical thing worked out in every walk of life. Even this woman who is primarily caring for her home and her family does not sort of shut up her care just to her home and her family, but finds in the sort of stream of of her domestic life an opportunity to also open up the, the kindnesses of God and to share them with others. We must find in whatever lane we're in practical ways to help to address the situation of the poor and needy if we would call ourselves just people. And if we would live our part in the good life. Here's a fourth thing. We must speak and act to protect life. Must speak and act to protect life. The good life that comes from fearing God and loving wisdom means we do not make excuses for why we are inactive in the cause of justice and righteousness. Rather, we speak up. And so Proverbs 24 verses 11 and 12 makes it clear that, you know, excuse-making before an omniscient God really is an ineffective strategy. Verse 11, the word says there, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now, imagine who that might be in our day. We can easily imagine here refugees fleeing Syria, people in various immigrant situations, I'm not here arguing for a particular law. I'm just sort of imagining that these are people who may fit this category. We, we can recognize an application to mass incarceration and modern-day human trafficking. People being taken away to death and slaughter. And the Bible tells us in verse 12, notice there, if you say, behold, we did not know this, Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? See, we serve a God who knows us better than we know ourselves. When my 11-year-old son tries to fudge the truth, I can often tell it. You know, he comes to me and he talks and he hadn't quite yet learned the mastery of, of subtlety, right? And praise God. I hope he never learns it. 
And so I can spot the excuses and the evasions and the half-truths. And sometimes all I have to do is kind of tilt my head to the side and look at him and he starts confessing and, and giving up everything, right? How much more our Father in heaven, who knows all things about us, how much more does he tilt his head and kind of look at us and smack his lips? You know God smacks his lips. When we try and make excuses about the things he's called us to do but that we have left undone. Does he not know our hearts? Does he not watch our souls? Does he not repay man according to his work? Rewarding the righteous and chastising the unrighteous. And so we ought to heed Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Many of you will have no doubt memorized these verses and thought about them a great deal as it relates to something like abortion, the injustice and the wickedness of abortion. But notice a key word in verse 8. The writer says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Key word being all. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's our call. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. To defend them uh, against the injustices that are so often the case in our world. To, to act and to speak up. There's a sense in which we're to understand that everyone who follows Christ in this good life is an advocate. It's meant to make noise rather than be silent. It's meant to take a position and to make the position known and to make righteousness, righteousness known rather than to be silent. So it is with God's people. Now, interestingly, I'm missing the rest of my manuscript. So we're going to do this from heart. <laughs> Y'all pray for your boy. <laughs> so here's another thing that we are, we are meant to understand as a responsibility before the Lord and uh, as a responsibility of those who are seeking to live the good life. We are meant to understand that not only do we take our side and that we speak up to help the needy, but as the Proverbs tells us in another place, we're meant to do this even at consequence to ourselves. That it is better for us to be poor on the side of righteousness than to be wealthy or to gain wealth in injustice. So, to see that, look with me at, in the Proverbs and uh, look with me at, let's see if I can find this here. Proverbs 16, verse 8. Proverbs 16, verse 8. The writer there says, Better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Or Proverbs 22, verse 16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives it to the rich, will only come to poverty. Will only come to poverty. Now, these texts don't, for example, set for us a particular tax policy, for example. But I do think, at least in principle, it raises questions of justice. 
about wealth and the acquisition of wealth, or not ta- not only tax policy, but it, it gets us in principle into conversations about regulations of various sorts, particularly those regulations that protect the poor, that protect disenfranchised consumers from predatory practices by the wealthy, by the rich. Doesn't tell us all we need to know, but God's word is sufficient to begin to sort of instruct us in all manner of righteousness. So we are meant to, if it comes to that, be happy and joyful with righteousness and poverty than to choose wealth and injustice. And of course, this means the the, the next thing is that we should avoid partiality. If we're going to be a just people, we have to be an impartial people. Uh, We see this, for example, in Proverbs 18, verse 5. The writer there says, it is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. And so we're going to want judges, for example, who are, who are righteous in character and impartial as far as we are able to tell. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-one: to show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. And all of that reminds us of James, doesn't it? That New Testament wisdom literature, if you will. James chapter 2. Maybe turn there and follow along with me a little bit. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James there instructing the Christian church, the New Testament church, says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to to those who love him? You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so you see, this is not something that sort of belongs to the Old Covenant alone, as if we are reading the Old Testament as Jewish scripture and not Christian scripture. This is something that the New Testament, inhabiting very much the same thought world as the First Covenant people, this is something very much the New Testament brings forward for us. This call to be impartial and just and righteous in our dealings with all people, protecting the marginalized in particular. So that's a responsibility for us, is to be impartial. And so we come then to a, a final thing here. We wish also not to be only to be impartial, but we wish to depend on God for justice. So in all of this call to enter the game and to, to put some skin in it, we're not called, being called to self-reliance. We're not called to the pursuit of justice in a kind of practical atheism. Remember what the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 29, verse 26. 
He writes there, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. And so in a sense, we come full circle. We began with the fear of the Lord and the, the fear of a Lord who in his own righteousness stands with the poor against oppression. And we come now in conclusion to this exhortation to trust the Lord, to depend upon him, to seek him as the one, the only one really who knows how to cut through the knotty entanglements of our unjust world. And to bring forth a righteousness and a justice and an equity that's both pleasing in his sight and maximally effective among men. And so this is an act of faith. And it's one that leads to joy. Proverbs twenty-one fifteen: when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Which brings us to our final question. We're seeing this from the wisdom literature. I've been arguing that this is part and parcel to the good life that the Bible holds out to us and calls us into as those who trust in God and follow his, Lord, his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question is, or, or maybe you're, he- you're hearing some of this for the first time and you're wondering about my emphasis. Maybe you're hearing some of this and you're suspicious of this talk of justice. Isn't this liberal? Isn't that the social gospel? Isn't it to be to become a social justice warrior, you know? Well, I want to suggest to you that if you hear it that way, and not merely as the word of God coming right up from the text, I've done very little more than just read the Bible to you. If you're hearing it that way, I want to suggest to you, you have learned a hearing impairment. And the reason you have learned a hearing impairment has a great deal to do with how we preach the Bible as preachers. We have conditioned you to hear conversation about justice in a particular way, and we need to rework that conditioning. Let me tell you what I mean in about four or five things. Number one, or let, let's move before I give you these four or five things. Just, just ask yourself the question, so test me here uh, what I'm saying. Ask yourself the question, does the typical evangelical preacher draw so tight a connection between godly wisdom and justice as the writer of Proverbs does? I suspect that not one in a hundred pastors make this connection in their preaching. The failure to preach and insist upon justice as biblically understood as a vital part of the good life creates these hearing problems for us. Let me give you the first one. We teach our hearers to flatten the words justice and righteousness to always mean justification and imputation. Sometimes preachers preach doctrine where the Bible is preaching duty. They replace the doxology of Christian living with the theology of Christian history. Both duty and doctrine are vital, but, but they cannot substitute one for the other. I mean, attempting to put doctrine in the place of duty or duty in the place of doctrine is like giving birth to twins and saying to the doctor, I only want to leave with one. No parents do that. They count themselves doubly blessed. And they go home to twice as many diapers, right? (laughs) The mother and the father leave with both babies. 
And we admit when we come to our Bibles to leave with both babies of theology and ethics, of doctrine and duty, not replacing one child with the other. And one of the ways that we do this with good intent, I think, but with bad effect, is that everywhere we see the word righteous or justice, we make too quick a trip to impartation or imputation and justification. It's a place for us to do that. But if you do it too quickly, people learn not to hear the Bible's ethical commands to do justice. We want to be careful of that in our preaching. Here's the second reason. This hearing impairment develops. Uh, Many evangelicals fail to hear the distinction between faith in conversion and the faith, referring to the entire Christian way of life. So if you only hear faith and fail to recognize that to be a Christian is to enter into a life and worldview, to join the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and to observe all that he has taught you, then you will tend to think discipleship is Jesus plus the things we want to add selectively rather than a whole new way of life, rather than a transformation of the mind and the will. Rather than a Romans 1, following Jesus in an obedience that comes from faith. Christianity is more than a decision. It is, in fact, a life. And I fear that much of our preaching of the gospel has rightly aimed at bringing people to cross the line, to turn from sin and to place their faith in Christ, but it stopped there without also explaining that you're now in a kingdom with a king whose rule you live under, who circumscribes and determines your life and has many moral and ethical requirements of you, not for your salvation, but from your salvation, from the work that he's done to save you. And when we fail to do that, inevitably things will boil down to a matter of personal preferences and the good life becomes little more than a baptized version of the American dream. And so wonder, this sounds alien to us because what we've been imbibing is this notion that Jesus makes me a better person and kind of baptizes all the things I want to do anyway rather than Jesus calls me to be a kind of person who having been baptized enters under his yoke and does the things he wants me to do. There's a third reason. Our people don't hear the connection between the good life and justice So as evangelical preachers and Christians, I'm afraid that we may have all but lost any categories for actual moral uprightness, integrity, equity, righteousness, and justice. Those things are small in our conception of what it means to be a person of faith. And beloved, we don't have to look any farther than the evangelical attachment to our current president to see it. the willingness of some evangelical Christians to support without qualification, justify in every circumstance, and defend without flinching. This man, despite his gross and flagrant moral failures, reveals a stunning weakness in our understanding of the moral universe of Christian living. A stunning failure. And to see the sea change in opinion from 70% of evangelical Christians saying just 
an election ago, two elections ago, that, that a person's moral character was important to their fitness to the office to sort of swing into the opposite way to see only 30% of Christians now saying that reveals not just a, a loss of this category, it reveals a soul-destroying and terrifying hypocrisy. It reveals a willingness to abandon principle for political power and pragmatism. And that is the result of our preaching. If we have not preached the requirements of justice and equity so clearly as to shape the minds of our people according to God's word to rule out such compromise and hypocrisy. And beloved, we have Christians who are entangled and trapped on both sides of the political spectrum. I want you to hear me clearly. Just as surely as evangelical allegiance to Donald Trump or the GOP seems to me to be ironclad and almost unshakable, just as surely as African-American Christian allegiance to democratic platforms and politicians seems to be ironclad and unshakable, it just reveals that we're all taken hostage. It reveals that the captivity is widespread and Satan doesn't care who he encaptures us with, he only cares that we're captured. And we miss the point if we argue about whether or not we should be D or R, blue or red, if the consequence of that argument is we wind up being unjust and unrighteous. We have to preach in such a way that lifts the moral requirements and the moral imperatives of our Lord high above the political and the worldly considerations of the voter and of our family and of our individual preference until our hearts are drawn up into what the Lord calls us to. If we have not made those categories clear in our preaching, we cannot be surprised if we wind up with a people who do not understand justice. Well, here's, here's another reason. People hear this wrongly, I would argue. Is that we oftentimes don't see the, the connection, or let me put this a different way. I think we have trained ourselves to understand and to fear that by acting out our faith, in the pursuit of justice and righteousness, we will, as a consequence, lose our faith. And this is where you, you hear most often the, the sort of allergy to the social gospel. Now, I've read Walter Rauschenbusch. I've read Washington Gladden. I've read a lot of folks who are self-consciously proponents of the social gospel. They don't sound like Proverbs. They don't sound like the Bible. <laughs> The, 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 the views are really quite far apart. The assumptions are, are really quite far apart. And the fact that when we hear the Bible, we think social gospel, that's an indication that we've got a hearing impairment. That something has entered into our hearing that keeps us from seeing that not only will we not lose our faith if we act upon it, we will prove our faith if we act upon it. Let me put it another way. Preachers don't stop preaching the gospel because they preach justice. They stop preaching the gospel because they stop preaching the gospel. These things are not in antagonism with each other. They're meant to be two halves of the same coin. 
And I think we're a church, the evangelical church is a church that understands this on some issues, but isn't consistent on all issues. We see very clearly that if we care about the unborn, we should speak up and act up in defense of them. If we care about marriage, we should speak up and act up. What we must ask ourselves is, why do we only care about those things? And does not the Bible call us to care about many more things and to act with the same conviction and moral clarity? I think we've slipped into a kind of docetic approach to personal faith and public witness. Well, we think of the inward piety of evangelicalism, which is a heart religion, as spiritual and pure. But we think of the sort of outward practice of that faith as either additional or dangerous, as physical and impure. And we need to correct that, because otherwise it leads to what my friend calls a do-nothing evangelicalism. And that does nothing for our witness in the world. A final reason. Final reason for this hearing impairment is that we don't hear the call of justice in its conception of the good life for how the Bible defines it. We often hear it hijacked, a hijacked version based upon the way the world defines justice or the good life. I've alluded to this already but the ways in which a a conservative or a progressive political view hijacks our hearing of the Bible with things that are often contrary to the Bible. And the ways in which we put a concern for political influence in the place of biblical faithfulness. So that when people hear justice, that word, they don't think Bible, they think party platform. Or they think meritocracy or individualism or welfare state or some such thing. But they don't hear their God. That's a hearing problem that leads to tribalism and partisanship. Which, beloved, if you haven't felt it already or observed it, trust me when I tell you, is right now racking the church. Racking the church. Now, let me conclude by saying this that many of my dear friends in the ministry who are mentors to me and whom I love greatly would at this point say something like, that's why we stay away from politics. That's why we stay away from these conversations for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of unity. And to that, I just really want to say that you can stay away from these issues to such an extent that you actually abandon what the Bible calls us to and you fail to disciple your people. It's not conversation about these things that's hurting us. It's the absence of teaching about these things that's hurting us. And so I just want to encourage us as preachers to open our Bibles and line upon line, precept upon precept, teach our people what the good life entails. It's a life that pleases God, that leads to peace and promotes prosperity, human flourishing. And that we ought not fear the Bible's call for us to be just people. And we might explore it more fully. And as preachers, we should give ourselves to that. Let me close this in prayer. Father, indeed, we pray that you would make us faithful. Faithful to the very end. To all that you have called us to. We thank you for your sufficient word, which is able to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. 
And we pray that again and again we would return to your word and find ourselves equipped and that we would do every good work, O Lord, that your spirit enables, that we might promote this good life in Jesus Christ and live it to the full. Do this for your glory, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.